Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey, we're going to shift right now into divine narrative. We're continuing the story. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff to cover and uh, we're going to dig right in. But again, quick reminder, divine story is really, uh, divine narrative is really God's story that he's trying to tell. And to remind us that the Bible that we read is not just a random collection of 66 books that we're trying to figure out. How in the world do these random over thousands of years, different cultures, different authors, how does this work together? And to our delight, we can find the more we look that there is one author and that's God, that God is telling a story. He's, he's got common threads uh, through familiar characters and events that we read all the time. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend our time looking for those common threads in the theme. And uh, a couple weeks ago, Corbin did a great job of presenting kind of three of those threads, which I'll remind us of. I'm sure you all remember, but uh, in great Presbyterian style, he listed three R's, which is, you know, it's what you do if you're a Presbyterian pastor. You do things in threes, and if you can do them with the same letter, you're, you're doing well. Uh, but those three R's, it does help us remember, are uh, revelation, that God is constantly revealing himself. Again, through multiple cultures, multiple time periods, uh, that he wants us to know who he is. Uh, second, it's the idea of relationship, that God, our God is all about relationships. Uh, not just general relationship, but personal and intimate relationship, different than any other religion on the planet. Uh, so that's, that's one of the threads that is sewn in here, woven into the narrative. Uh, and third, it's the idea of restoration or redemption. That's the third R, that God is, uh, from the very beginning, God created things good, and then things that took a turn, and the rest of the narrative, the rest of the Bible is about how God desires uh, great, greatly to redeem and restore us back to the way it was intended from the beginning. So that's the uh, narrative. Uh, Genesis walks us through this progression of general revelation, which is God's creation. And the Bible even says we can know God just in some ways, even just by his creation, that God reveals himself. Uh, and even Romans, I think, uh, talks about, hey, we are without excuse if we say we don't know what God is or who God is because of God's creation. Uh, and then he moves from general creation to personal, or excuse me, general revelation to personal revelation, and he begins with Abraham. Uh, he calls out Abraham, says, I'm going to have a relationship with you, and I'm going to reveal the world through you and your family. Uh, and that began a personal relationship. He's also, uh, Abraham is where the gospel, in essence, began. We learned that a number of weeks ago in a different study. But uh, that to Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's, that's a key part of what the story is today as much as it was then. Um, well, then he, uh, he moves from uh, personal revelation to family Revelation that he's creating a family. Uh, and that's why we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, father, son, grandson. And uh, today we'll look the next generation with, with the character of Joseph. But he's moving into family and how he's going to shape a family to reveal who God is to the world. And eventually, uh, this week and next week, we're going to spend on Joseph and then we're going to move into 
Moses and the Exodus, where we see that God is moving into a nation, that God is choosing to call out a nation to reveal who he is to the world, and whose purpose, by the way, is to bless all the nations. That's what he told Abraham. Um, So there's the overview. Uh, We're going to move, well, I will say, people that have responded, people that God used, it would be generous to say they're imperfect. Uh, they're, they're generally pretty messed up. And it, we, we kind of whitewash scripture sometimes, thinking, well, you know, let's look at the good things. But it's important for us to look at the negative things too, because that's where the threads of redemption and relationship come in. Because uh, those things are not based on our behavior, not based on how good we are. They're based on God's grace and redemption in our life. Uh, so that's, that's where we're moving. Uh, ultimately, though, they're the people that trust the story and play their part. And it's true in Abraham's time. Uh, God is looking, God is making himself known. He's looking for people who will trust the story and put God on display to a world that's going further and further off track. And that could be a, a great description of Abraham's generation as well as our generation. Still true today. God is still looking for partners who will trust the story, put God on display so the world can know who God is. That's God's way of uh, revealing the story. So again, this week, we're diving into Joseph. Um, It's rich. It covers a lot of territory. This one of the 12 sons of Jacob covers more territory in Genesis than any other character. Uh, 14 chapters. Chapter 37 to 50 is is basically Joseph's story. So we better look at that, see what kind of lessons we can get, see if we can find those threads uh, woven into his story. Um, Well, to start with, (laughs) we need to understand a little bit about the family that Joseph is born into. I mentioned it's a little dysfunctional, (laughs) a lot dysfunctional. In fact, I will, uh, if you want to write down the the four pillars of this family, Uh, they would be deception, (laughs) great pillar, uh, plain favorites, uh, jealousy, and I will go as far as say deep hatred. Not just, I don't like that person, but like, I want to murder that person type of hatred. Uh, that's what we see over and over in this family that God is forming. Uh, and it starts, we remember the story of Jacob. Jacob was the favorite of his mom, Rebecca. Esau was the favorite of his father, Isaac. And there was always that tension, that jealousy there. Uh, and then even Jacob's name, you know, I'm the usurper. I'm the, the one that grabs the heel. I'm going to get for myself. And he's going to do a lot of it through deception. So it's woven into his story a lot. He deceives his brother. He deceives his dad on his deathbed. He steals his birthright, steals the blessing that was intended for his brother. Uh, well, Esau, logically enough, got pretty upset with that one, the last thing that Jacob did, and he, he hates him to the point of, I'm going to kill him. And Jacob knows that. So he flees, and he goes to the land of his uncle Laban, uh, to, falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. Um, and this is the woman I'm, I'm going to marry. Things are going to be great now. Uh, and now the tables are turned, because he agrees to work for seven years to get his love of his life, Rachel, and Laban now deceives him. On his wedding night, Laban inserts the older, less desirable, will be generous, less desirable to, uh, to, jo- uh, to Jacob. Uh, 
he wakes up in a rude awakening. Maybe that's where that term came from. Rude awakening to find yourself in bed with not your love of your life, but the older sister. And uh, even with that, though, he says, I will work another seven years to get Rachel if that's what it takes. So he is really obsessed with Rachel, his first love. Well, then uh, we find out really quickly there end up being four wives and 12 sons uh, born in this family. That tells you something about <laughs> dynamics. And Leah begins to have children right away. Leah gives birth to Reuben, the firstborn, the Behor in the Hebrew, a term they use for the firstborn with all the privileges that come with it, born to Leah, and she names him Reuben. Reuben, which means God sees me. And she says, now my husband will love me. And then she has a second baby, uh, Simeon, means God hears me. (laughs) And again, now Jacob will love me. Then he has a third son, uh, Simeon, which means attached, or excuse me, Levi, I already said Simeon, Levi, the third son, which doesn't mean in blue jeans, for those that not know where they came from. <laughs> Levi means uh, attached. It means now I'll be attached to my husband and he will love me. You can tell where this narrative is going. She is desperately unloved and wanting to be loved by Jacob. After that, she has a fourth son, Judah, and the narrative turns dramatically, and now she just succumbs in some ways. She just says, praise God. That's what Judah means. Um, Maybe she's given up on Jacob loving her. Uh, Well, then she stops having children at that point, and I'm going to suggest as you look at the rest of the narratives, she probably stops sleeping with Jacob. Uh, Jacob is now residing in the tent of his first love, Rachel. Uh, well, Rachel's very jealous because Leah's had four children now. <clears throat> so maybe she's the one that put the kibosh on who you're going to sleep with. And uh, she gets jealous and convinces Jacob, said, hey, doesn't look like I can have children. Take my handmaid, Bilhah, and have children by her. They'll be my sons through her. <laughs> Sound familiar? Uh, another character, uh, Sarah and Abraham, did the same thing, trying to fulfill their own destiny. Um, anyway, she has two children, uh, and the first one is Dan. The second one was Naphtali, two more sons in the family. Well, then Leah gets jealous. Hope she's catching up to me. I can't let this happen. So she convinces her husband, Jacob, sleep with my handmaid, Zilpah, and have children by her. So he does, and she has Gad and Asher. Great names. If you're writing those down, no, never mind. <laughs> anyway. So she has two children. Now we're a long ways down. Next episode, the next thing that happens is Reuben, the firstborn, comes, in, uh, comes into the house of his mom, Leah, and says, look, I found these mandrakes, and gives her these mandrakes. And that's not a term we're familiar with. But mandrakes, some of you may know that, uh, is a flowering plant in the Middle East. Uh, they tend to find it when they're harvesting because it gets dug up and that kind of thing. Well, what's distinct about mandrakes is the root system actually looks kind of like a human form, sometimes more male than female. And uh, they just believe that's a good luck charm for fertility. And so uh, Reuben gives that to Leah, and uh, Rachel comes in and says, hey, can I I get some of your son's mandrakes? She's now still wanting to have children that she's not able to have. And Leah says, predictably, You've stolen my husband, 
and now you want to steal my son's mandrakes. He said, I will give you his mandrakes only under the condition that you let me sleep with Jacob again. <laughs> Big hint. So she says, okay. And so she confronts Jacob and she sleeps with him and she has two more children, Issachar and Zebulun. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then it takes the turn where it, don't know if it was the mandrakes did the trick or God just gave Rachel great grace, but God remembers Rachel and she has Joseph. So Joseph is the 11th born, uh, the firstborn of Jacob's first love, which is going to come into play in, Joseph, in uh, Jacob's mind. So that's where Jacob comes in, or excuse me, where Joseph comes in. A little while later, uh, actually a number of years later, she gives birth to Benjamin and she dies giving birth to Benjamin. That, this is the family that Joseph enters into. So let's start the narrative in Genesis 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Uh, the only two he mentioned, maybe there were only four sons at that little group of shepherds. Um, uh, his father's wife, he brought, he brought their father a bad report about them. So already you're learning a little of his, his personality. Uh, he's kind of basically spying for his dad and uh, basically driving a wedge between him and the rest of his brothers. Uh, he recognizes he's his dad's favorite. And the next verse makes that very clear. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And I would insert to Rachel. Uh, and made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So this, is, this dynamic is getting worse and, uh, and worse. Uh, well, important to know, I already mentioned, the firstborn has privileges. Uh, Reuben was the son that was supposed to get the extra robe uh, because the firstborn always gets a double portion. And that's a clear sign of who the firstborn is, who's designated as that. Maybe Jacob was comfortable with not having Reuben as the firstborn and wanting jo Joseph to be because, hey, after all, he stole his, his own birthright from his brother. Uh, but it's clear that he's pointing out Joseph. He gives him an ornate robe. doesn't say technicolor robe, but maybe it was. We know it was ornate. Uh, so that's a clear sign to his brothers that, oh, he's his favorite. Um, <laughs> then it goes on. Uh, oh, well, so how does Reuben feel? Important little tidbit here. Reuben's probably pretty mad at his dad. Why, why have you forsaken me? Why have you not considered me. Well, we get a clue on that one. In Genesis 35, it says, while Israel was living in the region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. <laughs> and Israel, Jacob, heard about it. <laughs> that will probably disqualify most sons from the grace of their father. So he, he earned his disrespect from his dad and uh, turned his attention to Joseph. Joseph will take Reuben's place. That's kind of his dad's thinking. Um, well, then we have the dream sequence. The dream maker, Joseph, we all kind of familiar with that. But let's see how that plays out. Uh, again, in 37, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, like, seriously, Joseph? Because we know the dream is pretty offensive. But he tells the dream to his brothers. Maybe he's just spoiled. He's 17. He's immature. 
Maybe he loves being in his father's graces and he's putting that in his brother's face. But he's playing a part in this jealousy, clearly. Uh, And it says, uh, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. (laughs) There's no two ways to interpret that one. Oh, he was pretty direct. Uh, And his brothers clearly, it says... I hated him all the more because of the dream which, which he had said. So the tension's rising. And then it says, next event. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. He said, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, another not great move, um, His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his heart, in his mind. Father's thinking, well, God, Joseph, not good, not good to to declare that. You really think we're going to bow down to you, but in his heart he's thinking, God, what are you doing in the life of my son? And it just kind of ends there. Well, then the, uh, the chapter that God didn't tell him about gave him this great dream of how he's going to end up being a ruler somehow and brothers are going to bow down to him. But he didn't tell him this part because now he gets sold into slavery. And uh, <laughs> I'll just narrate this part. Another day, he's, he's hanging out at home which uh, while the rest of the brothers are out tending sheep. Uh, Benjamin's there now, but Benjamin's a young boy, not out with a sheep. But Joseph should be, 17 years old, hanging out with dad. And his dad said, hey, go check on your brothers. I want to hear what's going on with the brothers. Uh, they're tending sheep in Shechem. So <laughs> I was curious. I looked it up, just the geography involved. But they're in Hebron, which is near present-day Jerusalem, down in that area. That's where they've settled. And they go up to Shechem. Well, Shechem's about 45 miles away. So it's not like over the hill, check on your brothers in the back 40. No, they go to where they are in, in uh, Shechem. And I lived on the South Hill in Spokane, so I just made a little quick comparison here. I uh, lived on the far South Hill. If you go up Hatch Street Hills, kind of the first exit you take when you go to Spokane, if, if my dad say, hey, check on your brothers, uh, I would have to walk all the way to Steptoe. Uh, that would be comparable to <laughs> like it's a, a journey. And uh, Joseph gets there, and he doesn't see him, and he's wandering around this field, and this guy comes up to him. He says, hey, have you seen my brothers? I, uh, they were here tending sheep. They're supposed to be here. Uh, I heard them talking. They, uh, didn't, the uh, grass is greener on the other side, basically. We're running out of grazing land. They went up to Dothan. So I had to march again to Colfax, about 12 miles uh, from Steptoe. And uh, that's where he runs into his brothers. And then this is the story we need to look at really carefully. Because before he even uh, comes into his brother's presence, they see him in a far distance and say, oh, there's that dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's take his robe off of him, kill him, throw him in a cistern. And then we'll go back to dad and say, got killed by an animal. That was plan A. Um, And they all kind of shook their heads except Reuben. Reuben jumps in and, and says this in Genesis 37. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue them, him from them and to take him back to his father. So you can kind of see Reuben's, 
Reuben's saying, I can take advantage of this. I got to get back into my dad's graces. We'll get rid of the behor that his dad loves, and I'll take, I'll take my position back. So he's doing it for his own selfish reasons, but he wants to rescue him. So that's the plan. The plan is, when he comes, they haven't even confronted him yet. When he comes, we're going to strip him of his robe and throw him in a cistern, and he'll die. That, that's the plan. They didn't do it just to say, hey, we're going to punish him for a couple hours. They said, hey, no, we, we won't murder him by our hand. We'll just throw him in the cistern. Uh, and then the next little episode, they're having a meal, and they look up and they see the Ishmaelites in the distance, a group of traders that are coming down uh, through Gilead into Egypt. Uh, they're on the trade route, so this isn't uncommon. Well, they see it, and Judah speaks up now, and Judah says, hey, why don't we take advantage of this situation? Rather than let him just die in the cistern, why don't we sell him to those Ishmaelite traders? They're on their way to Egypt. We can make some money on this deal. So they all agreed. And that's, that's where it, it goes. Well, <laughs> let me read this narrative because this is the one we're all familiar with. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern, saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? And that's the story we all have heard. <laughs> but there's another way to translate this story because there's a problem. I don't know if you caught the problem here, but verse 28 says, so when the Midianite merchants came by, well, wait, 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 I thought they were Ishmaelites. And then the brothers took him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. So what's this Midianite merchants about? Well, it's there. It's there for a reason. And the reason is this. We love to translate it, put the blame on the brothers for selling them into slavery. But I would suggest, and uh, well, not me, I didn't come up with this. I have learned <laughs> that if you throw him into the pit and you're, you're done, you're not going to hang around. You're, they're probably two or three miles away. Decide to stop for a meal. And they see off in the distance these traders. And then let's read this story from that point when they say, hey, let's sell them to the Ishmaelites. And this is the King James Version, the earliest English translation. It also matches the uh, Jewish translation. It says this. Then there passed by the Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. Well, now that makes sense. Midianites were there. So they're off a ways. They see, hey, let's go get him. Uh, let's go sell him to the Ishmaelites. And in the meantime, probably right about that time, they see, or this, this Midianite merchants are there. They hear this kid screaming. They sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Reuben, who's with his brothers, eating a couple miles away, kind of go, oh my gosh. No, I can't let him get sold. I have to, I have to be the, the hero here. So he runs to the cistern, and he's not there. He's already gone. And he runs back to his brothers and says, hey, he's gone. This is news. It's not the way we planned it. He's been sold, basically, is what he's saying. Um, and I will just say, the reason I bring that up is because if, if you look at it from that standpoint, it changes the narrative in Joseph's mind of what's going on and what we'll discover in part two next week. Uh, but just a little spoiler alert. Here's a... Ahead a few chapters when 
the brothers are confronting Joseph and they realize that they're in big trouble. And this is what they said. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. (laughs) That's why this distress has come on us. They just went away from him. They said nothing in here about, oh, we've sold him into slavery. Uh, That didn't even come into the picture at all. Uh, So again, it fits the idea that they're not the ones that physically sold him into slavery. But that's where we find ourselves. So now we're going to continue the story. Joseph is... uh, uh, is now on his way to Egypt and the brothers revert back to plan A. They've already stripped his coat off of him. Uh, and in Genesis, uh, what is it, 37, 31, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in, his, in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it, see if this is your son's. And it says he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And that's the last of chapter 37. Joseph is on his way to Egypt. His dad thinks he's dead. And that's where we find ourselves. Well, then the next chapter should pick up in Egypt, but it doesn't. It's kind of weird. Chapter 38 is this oddly placed story in the narrative. He could have placed it anywhere, but he placed it right there. It's a story of Judah. It has nothing to do with Joseph, or, or does it? Because <laughs> we've learned uh, when things don't make sense, things seem out of place, focus on that thing, because that's part of, there's a thread in there God's trying to tell us about. Uh, so I'll just narrate this story real quick. So it says, right after they uh, show the robe to the father, it says Judah departs and goes to Canaan and marries a Hivite woman. Uh, don't even get her name, but she's the daughter of Shua. Um, that's much of that detail. And then it says he has three sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah. Uh, those are his three sons. When Ur is old enough, takes a wife by the name of Tamar. And Tamar, uh, or, uh, but God looks at the life of Ur and says he is a wicked person. And God kills him. God takes him out. And so now the custom of the Jewish family would be the second in line would uh, would marry her and have children so that his legacy would continue, the brother's legacy. But Onan didn't want to do that. He married her, and he laid with her often, but every time he did, he would spill his seed so she would not become pregnant. Uh, God saw that, said she is wicked, and he uh, kills him as well. So now she was going, this is my family's getting wiped out here. But he tells Tamar, when Shayla is old enough, you can marry him and he'll fulfill the obligation. Well, he gets old enough, and nothing happens. Uh, No more conversation about giving any more sons to Tamar, so she's on her own. So Tamar takes the situation into her hands. Tamar dresses up as a prostitute outside this village she's staying at, knowing that Jacob comes by here often, and, uh, or excuse me, Judah comes by here often, and she plays the prostitute. She sits at the city gate. And here comes Judah, who had lost his wife not too many years before, and uh, turns aside, and she uh, solicits him and says, what are you going to pay me? And he says, I'll give you a, a baby goat next time I'm in town. <laughs> Great business deal. And she says, well, what are you going to give me as a surety for this? And he gives her his staff, a signet, 
and a cord. So personal items that belong to Judah. So she takes those. Well, three months later, she's pregnant. And uh, word gets back to Judah. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is three months pregnant. And Judah gets really upset. She deserves to die. And he was going to have her come to his village and burn her alive for daring to uh, have sex outside of marriage. Well, she gets brought in front of him and, and she says, she takes the three items and says, here, examine these. See if you recognize them. <laughs> Same words that were used when Judah and his brothers presented the robe uh, to Jacob. Or excuse me, uh, yeah, to Jacob. <laughs> well, tension mounts. Uh, Judah is broken at this point, which will come in important later, and says she is more righteous than I am. Uh, and it turns out she has twins from that uh, episode. He didn't sleep with her anymore. But why is that important? Why, why is that episode there? Uh, great question. Judah is in the line of Jesus. Jesus was promised to come from the line of David through Judah. Uh, Matthew records it. Starts with David, moves on, and then he comes to Matthew 1.3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, the twins, whose mother was Tamar. (laughs) I don't know about you, but if I'm writing this story, I would have buried that one. That's a chapter I don't want to put in there. But he goes out of his way to insert it in the middle of this other story of of Joseph. Um, (laughs) Why? Well, I would suggest that that's a major thread in God's narrative. Uh, Forgiveness, grace, and redemption. Uh, It wasn't enough that he just, that she was spared, that she uh, connived her way to have kids by her father-in-law. But he says, you know what? My grace is sufficient. My grace is greater than anything you could do wrong. And so he inserts her into the line of his son Jesus. That's the God we serve. That's the God who, the way he looks at us, he doesn't look at our behavior and says, eh, no. mm." He just says, you know what? I'm writing a story. And uh, here's here's a thread I want you to remember. Above anything you do or don't do, the thread of redemption and grace. Uh, and then that's it. Then it comes back to Joseph. And uh, chapter 39 or picks up where we left off in 37. Joseph ends up in Egypt. He's in the house of Potiphar, high official. Already some grace there. Could have been anywhere, but he ends up in the high official's house. And it says that he wins favor uh, by this master. It just observes Joseph's life and knows that God is favoring him. And he gives him rule over his whole household. Uh, it says he cared about nothing that was under Joseph's care. And so Joseph's probably thinking, okay, I'm on the, on the rise here. This is good. I'm going to get what I uh, deserve. And God's going to come through. Well, then uh, enters the scene as Potiphar's wife. She tries often to seduce Joseph, wants to sleep with him. And uh, he resists every overture. And then there's one day it tells about where all the servants are gone. Maybe she sent the servants away, knowing that Joseph would come back to the house at some time. And she confronts him and puts the, the big move on him. <laughs> Basically tries to grab him and take him to bed. And he shakes her off, but she strips him of his cloak. And uh, he runs out. Uh, 
<laughs> later that night, Potiphar comes home and she says, here, examine this. See if you recognize it. And he says, oh, that Hebrew slave, that's his cloak. And he gets thrown into the cistern, which is the word in Hebrew. It's really the dungeon. But There's another word for dungeon, but the Hebrew author put cistern in there because now Joseph is back in the pit uh, under circumstances. He's probably wondering, where is God now? Why, why is this happening to me? What is going on? Um, <laughs> I'll just uh, put, even when he was in prison here, this tells you something because it's the same narrative. It says on Genesis 39, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness, granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all that he held in prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So it tells you something that Joseph is still trusting God. He's still honoring God in his life, and it shows to this warden, and he gets favored. Um, so that's, that's amazing. Uh, I, it made me think of Proverbs 3, 1, and 4. Uh, where is it? There it is. My son, do not forget my teaching. Keep my commands in your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. This is written way after Joseph, but it could describe his life right here. Don't give up on me. Keep trusting. Keep following what I've asked you to do. And I will give you favor with God and man. Uh, great message. Well, we're going to end part one right here. What's, uh, what's, this, what's this telling us? What's the lessons here? Uh, well, I would suggest when we have a pit experience, I would say we probably have one of two responses. First response is, <laughs> what did I do wrong? What did I do that I'm in this pit? And Joseph may have said that the first pit he was in. Okay, I really didn't treat my brothers well. I acted like a jerk. I'm not very mature. Maybe I added to this experience. Um, the second response might be, <laughs> I don't deserve this. I did nothing wrong. Why are you punishing me? What is happening here? Um, those would be the two. And that may be his response a second time. Because he did honor God. He didn't do anything to deserve where he was. But he's in the pit nevertheless. And I think the first lesson is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we contributed to why we're in the pit or not. Uh, I'm going to suggest we've all probably been in the pit once or twice in our life. And if you're young, it will happen again. Um, that's life. The key is God is with you in the pit. The key is not, if I do good, I'm going to end up being good. I'm gonna, good things are going to happen. If I do bad things, I'm going to end up in bad places. Because that's kind of how we mislook at a lot of situations. Well, Romans 8.28, because he, uh, in God's mind, he wants to transform us. He wants to use that experience to experience him. And he says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we kind of dismiss that. Oh, that's great. But he's talking about all things. This pit experience works together for good if we continue uh, to trust. Uh, God's message is not do well and it will be good for you. God's message is in all things, trust me, and it will be good. That's God's message to us. Uh, 
I will say just a quick, as I thought about this in my own life, I thought every major positive stage in my 40 years of ministry, every single one was preceded by a pit experience. And I don't think that was an accident. And I could probably look at a couple of them and say, I think I contributed to some of that. Others, I could say, there's no way. Why, why is this happening? But God wanted to use those experiences to prepare me for something else, to transform me, to do a work in me that would better enable me to do what he had in mind for me. Um, <laughs> quick overview, when I was in Spokane, volunteer in Young Life, had a business going well. I've already shared these stories at different times, but uh, the business ended up imploding. Um, by mostly be, you know, reasons aren't important. It imploded. I had a, a good chunk of my dad's retirement money at risk, and I was a third son. I was in a deep, deep pit thinking, what, what in the world? How's, how am I going to be blessed through this? This is not what I signed up for. Uh, but not only, but I, I did. I, I just kept saying, I have no idea, but I'm still trusting you. Uh, as, as weak as a statement that might be, that's where I was. I didn't abandon God because I knew he didn't abandon me, but I had no idea. Well, not only did he restore everything that was lost financially, uh, but then he called me on the Young Life staff, began a ministry that I think I was better prepared for because of that pit experience. I get to Tri-Cities kind of like Joseph's like, okay, now I'm, now I'm good. I'm now where I'm supposed to be. God's favoring me. And the very first event we had in the Tri-Cities was an oatmeal volleyball match. We had 200 kids. Uh, from like six schools. They hadn't only had Young Life in two schools, but we put on this big event. Yeah. 200 kids going awesome. I was hoping the news would be there. Uh, this is, this is going to be awesome. And then uh, about an hour later, we're done and doing some slip inside, and Nick Hart breaks his neck, gets paralyzed from the neck down. <laughs> what, what, are we, what, what is going on? This is going to ruin. This is the first event in my new calling, if you will. Uh, but God worked in that situation as well. Nick and his whole family embraced a relationship with Christ. Nick was healed, uh, was able to walk again when he told him he couldn't, wouldn't be able to. And we experienced some great blessing of ministry for the next seven years. Then we went to, <laughs> then we went to San Jose, California. I'm now the Metro director. I'm moving up. This is awesome. I'm, and it was horrible. Ministry was great, but... Uh, Financially, we were dying. We were going underwater every month. Two of our daughters were getting married. For years we were there, we had so much debt, it was ridiculous. And I'm thinking, this is, this is not good. And that's the same, uh, I shared this a couple months ago, about it's also the place where Judy had her health crisis. And I'm thinking, seriously, this is, this is a double blow pit here. Uh, but God used that experience to prepare me for what would be next in Africa. I think he had to humble us, get us to a point where we say, "Do I re- are you really going to trust me? Because what I got for you next is going to be pretty amazing, but you're going to have to trust me. Um, God didn't cause those things to happen, but he'll use whatever, all things, work together for good if we trust him. Um, so, two lessons. Close with this. Sorry I'm running late. Number one, uh, there it is. God's not punishing you, he's preparing you. When you are in a pit situation, don't think you're being punished because uh, that's not God's nature. God's nature is I'm going to use this situation to prepare you and to transform you. 
So he's not punishing us, he's preparing us. Second, this is the fourth R to go along with the first three is response. Our response determines how much of God we'll experience. If we trust him, if we trust the story, uh, we'll experience more of God. Uh, even be, I would say even with the pit, but it, maybe because of the pit, if we allow God to, to move in our life. Um, so there's our, there's our lesson for the day. We will find out next week uh, as we look at an amazing conclusion of this story of great grace, restoration, redemption. And we'll get back to Joe, uh, Judah and how he's now been transformed and uh, plays a huge part in this. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.